and welcome back to A Step Into History. I'm your host, Jace. I am super excited to talk to you all about history. If this is your first episode that you're listening to this podcast, I highly recommend going to the first episode and starting from there, because we start with the beginning of history and and work from that point on. We are currently in Egypt, and there's going to be a lot of parts on Egypt because there's so much history that's going on during this ancient Egyptian time. If you are a return listener, uh, welcome back, like I said before. In the previous episode, you might remember some things we talked about. We talked about Akhenaten, and we started talking about Nefertiti a little bit. Um, We spoke a very, very small little bit about King Tut. But what we're going to do with this episode is we're going to continue talking about the end of Akhenaten's reign and also the beginning of Nefertiti and go on from there. So we're going to continue this lineage of pharaohs. In a later episode, I'm going to go over the different or the list of rulers of ancient Egypt. And I'll show you how many rulers actually had because there's there are so many of them. There There is, per dynasty, there's at least 10. So it, it continues on. And if we were to cover every single one of these different rulers, it would take an entire podcast by itself. It, there's a lot of information. So we're just going to be picking out some of these here and there. Now, like I was saying, you might remember we talked about a little bit about Nefertiti. We're going to continue talking about Nefertiti um, for this first part of this episode. So, during Akhenaten's reign, he had his wife Nefertiti with him. Now, on the walls of the tombs of the temples that were built during Akhenaten's time, during his reign, Nefertiti is depicted alongside her husband, Akhenaten, with, with a frequency that's not seen with other Egyptian queens. Most of the time, it's been the pharaoh by themselves, with the queen or or with the queen separate or a, a picture of the queen by herself so it's it's not seen as, as common as what's what is happening with Akhenaten and Nefertiti now she's also shown in, in images in p- positions of power and authority uh, she's either leading the worship of Aten which that's usually a more higher rank job that they would have back then or she was driving a chariot or she was smiting an enemy showing that she actually did have some power throughout ancient Egypt during this time. Now, what's common among many rulers throughout all of history is that these rulers want to have a son to carry on their name. It's just a common thing that happens. Well, Nefertiti actually gave birth to six daughters, so they didn't have any sons. After a while, Akhenaten decided that okay, I, need, I need a son to carry on my name, so he started taking other wives. Now, this part's a little bit messed up, but one of those included his sister, and then that was the uh, his sister was the mother of the future King Tut, who we're going to talk about later on in this podcast. Now, she also, Nefertiti also disappears from historical record around the 12th year of Akhenaten's 17 year, year reign. It's similar to like Hatshepsut, who we talked about before, the first woman pharaoh. She may have died at, the, at this point, but if we think about it like Hatshepsut, she didn't have any records till later later they were found. It's possible that Nefertiti became her husband's co-regent under a different name, Nefer-Neferuaten, which I mentioned last episode. Um, But what we do know is that Akhenaten was followed by another pharaoh by the name of uh, Smenkare, which some historians have suggested that this was another name for Nefertiti, so she could have changed her name. Now this this is very likely because we know that during Hatshepsut's time, the first female pharaoh, she had changed her whole entire image uh, to become more looking like a man. She had the ceremonial false beard. She was depicted more larger in stature. 
So it is possible that Nefertiti changed her name and became this next pharaoh after Akhenaten. Now, if Nefertiti had kept power during this time, it's possible that she did begin the reversal of her husband's religious policies. If you remember, he, uh, Pharaoh Akhenaten had set up this cult throughout the entire area of the Egyptian empire that they should all be worshiping this god, Aten. Um, so it is, it's, if Nefertiti had kept her power, she had started the reversal of this because later on, King Tut was able to completely get rid of that different religion. We'll talk more about this in a second. Now, there's a point in time that Nefertiti had employed a scribe to make offerings to a different god, Amun, who was um, a previously worshipped god before Akhenaten's time. Uh, she had the scribe pleading for the god, Amun, uh, to return the dis and dispel the kingdom's darkness. So basically trying to get rid of this this dark darkness that had spread throughout the, the entire empire because of the worship of this god, Aten. Now, here's a, a fun side note. If you remember from the past episode, the, the ending of the la last episode, we talked about the bust of Nefertiti that was found and how it was different on the inside than it was on the outside. Now, I found something else that I thought was really interesting. This doesn't take place in the ancient Egyptian time, though. This is a little bit farther along in history. But um, here's what I found. So the bust was found in 1913 by a German archaeologist. They did a CT scan that just that they were able to discover that inside the plaster was another carved bust of somebody else that wasn't ever TV at all. Now, this bust had been on display in the expedition's funder, Jacques Simons, for or his home for 11 years. And then in 1922, Howard Carter, who was a British archaeologist, had discovered King Tut's tomb. And this created a ton of attention because this funerary mask was so beautiful and it was found to be the the new global symbol of beauty wealth and power now a year after this the nefertiti bust was put on display in berlin they were wanting to counter the english quotation marks tut with the german quotations appropriation of the ancient glamour so they're trying to make a competition throughout the 20th century upheavals all the wars that happened world war one world war two the bust Nefertiti remained in German hands. It never was taken away. They always had it. Now, this bust was revered by Hitler, who even said, I will never relinquish the head of the queen. He did not want to give up this, this uh, Nefertiti bust. Now, they hid the bust um, from Allied bombs in the salt mine, and this was later coveted by the East, German, East Germany throughout the Cold War. Today, it is still in... The, the German's possession. It's in the Berlin's uh, uh, newest museum. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. We're, we're going to go over a lot more detail of World War II. It's not just going to be little parts like that. So now we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to stop talking about Nefertiti. We're going to talk about a pharaoh that a lot of people, if not everybody, has at least heard of, who is King Tut. Even though his reign was not long, it was pretty short, uh, there's quite a bit of history that's been that's been found on him. King Tut, or, or Tutankhamun, um, only ruled for 10 years when he died at the age of 19. So this is around 1324 BC. So he's still a young kid when he died. Remember earlier we, we spoke about Nefertiti perhaps being the, 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 starting the reversal of Akhenaten's religious takeover. It's more notable that King Tut had been the one to completely reverse it. But his legacy was largely negated by his successors. 
He wasn't really known about the modern world until Howard Carter had chiseled his way through the door and entered the boy's pharaoh's tomb in 1922. The horde of artifacts and treasures that were intended to stay with the pharaoh showed an incredible, incredible amount of uh, information about the royal family's lives, of ancient Egypt's royalty, and all these things. Now, this is why King Tut is the most famous, one of the most famous pharaohs. Uh, the tre treasures and everything that was in King Tut's tomb was not very normal for a pharaoh who did not live very long. It was very odd to see this happen. It's believed that the materials and the treasures that were put in King Tut's tomb were actually supposed to be for the, the his his father, quotation marks, his father's tomb, which is Pharaoh Akhenaten. But since Akhenaten was overthrown because of his great changes that he had made, they weren't put in his tomb. And so it's possible that they were collecting all of these different types of treasures just and, and then just putting them into King Tut's tomb. Now, Carter, he had a patron who died four months after he entered the tomb of the King Tut and later journalists uh, popularized the curse of the pharaohs which claimed that hieroglyphs on the tomb itself promised swift death to whoever disturbed the tomb. So he started to get these, these curses of the, of the ancient Egyptians that people started to freak out about because of one of Carter's patrons who died soon after, and, and this writer had wrote a lot of stuff about it. There have since been a total of 12 deaths which had been attributed to this curse. But in reality, the studies have shown that the people who have entered the tomb on average lived just as long as their peers who didn't enter. So the curse of the pharaohs is more of a hoax than it is of, of being reality. Now, some quick background of, of King Tut's royal lineage. There is a genetic testing that was done that proved King Tut was a grandson of the pharaoh Amenhotep III, which makes it almost a certainty that he was the son of Akhenaten. Um, We've talked enough about Akhenaten. I said his name a billion times, so I'm not going to go into any more detail about him. But since King Tut was able to reverse the religion that was set in place by his father and revive the worship of the god Amun and the other gods and bring the religious center back to Thebes, he changed his name to reflect his royal allegiance to the creator, uh, the creator god Amun. That's why his name is that Tukhan Um Now let's start to discuss about how he died because there's a lot of different theories on how he died. He didn't live very long. Like we said, he died at the age of 19. And there are a lot of a lot of things that say are, are trying to tell us why he died. We're going to go through a couple of these right now. Now, the British archaeologist that discovered King Tut's sarcophagus, Howard Carter, he wasn't able to find an answer to why the king had died. But with modern forensics and medical technology that we have, there have been more and more clues as to what may have happened to this boy king. Um, he did suffer from malaria, which a lot of people don't know. He also had a fractured lower leg and uh, congenital deformities that was that had come because of inbreeding that happened in Egyptian royalty. They wanted to keep the lineage pure, and so they would have a lot of inbreeding happen, just like Akhenaten having his sister um, be the mother of King Tut. Now, some other CT scans showed that the king had a cleft palate and a fairly long head, uh, a curved spine, and a fused upper vertebrae. So historians have said that this could be from, from Marfan syndrome, which is a type of genetic disorder that affects the body's connective tissues, um, which could have been a reason why he died so, so young. But this was later proved to be negative. Um, 
one theory that I like, that I like to, to bring up is the theory of the chariot crash theory. There is a painting on his casket that showed the king in battle riding in a chariot. Uh, producers of a BBC documentary in 2014 brought up the possibility of the king's death being linked to a chariot crash that had broken the boy's legs and his pelvis, and then this turned into infection, which actually killed him. Uh, this is a good theory, but there is no record indicating that this actually happened. In the BBC documentary, they pointed out that the mummy showed evidence of the king having suffered from a severe trauma to his side, and they said that this could have been caused by the impact of a chariot wheel, but there's no way to tell if this is something that it actually causes death before or even afterwards. I'll talk about why I, I'm focusing on the afterwards part, though. Um, there's also a hole in the back of the king's skull that researchers could say could have been assassination. So there's another theory for you. It could have been assassination. But later on, this was proven that it happened during the mummification process. Now, the next, um, next thing I want to talk about, uh, why I was saying we should focus on the, the afterwards, things that are happening to the body afterwards, is that it's the post-mortem factor. This issue has come to be uh, uh, kind of hush-hushed under the rug, but this is stuff that's happened to the King Tut's uh, body after you know he was discovered. So after Howard Carter had discovered King Tut's tomb in 1923, he and his team returned to the returned the mummy to an outer burial chamber in 1926. He, re he remained there until 2007. During this time, there were some jewels and necklaces that King Tut um, had buried had been buried with him but these were removed from his body and this could have fractured the, the fragile remains because this is thousands of years old uh, and it could have actually changed what we know about his body um so these things have happened to the king tut after his death so it's hard to tell exactly how he died and made it nearly impossible to know the facts of of, of the king's life So we have all this information about why the king died or what the possibilities could be. And this has created a huge mystery around the king's death. But there are also gaps in his life that we don't have. We don't have his full, his full story. What we do know is that he was a son of a very controversial king, Akhenaten, who had changed religions, had changed the politics, had changed the lives of Egyptians. Uh, king Tut also restored the old gods and temples, which erased what his father did. And this caused the empire to be more stable. But the rulers that followed King Tut had tried to erase anything that was had any information on King Tut or King Akhenaten. Um, David P. Silverman, who was a professor of Egyptology at the University of Pennsylvania, said, They specifically tried to take memory of the entire family away by not including them, speaking of Akhenaten and King Tut, in the later lists of kings. It's as if these people didn't exist. So even though uh, he had tried to bring back the empire to be more stable just because he was linked to his father they wanted to erase what he what he did um, even though much of the king's life was erased in death he has become one of the one of ancient Egypt's most famous pharaohs um, some other additional information on the king we know that he was tall but he was also physically frail he had crippling bone disease in his clubbed left foot he's the only pharaoh that is known to have been depicted seated while engaging in physical activities like archery um, now, with traditional inbreeding in the Egyptians' royal family, uh, this could have contributed to the young king's poor health and his early death. In 2010, there were DNA tests done on him, which revealed that his parents were brother and sister. Uh, 
King Akhenaten had um, fathered this child with his sister. Uh, King Tut's wife was actually his half-sister. They had only two children, two daughters. They were both stillborn. Uh, now also, because his tomb was so small, historians have suggested that his death was unexpected and his burial was rushed by the following pharaoh eye. His tomb was stacked to the ceiling with over 5,000 artifacts, which included furniture, clothes, chariots, weapons, and even 130 walking sticks that the boy king used. What's interesting is that all these artifacts were found. The interior part of the pharaoh's tomb was not touched. It had been sealed since the burial date. The outer rooms had been looted, which is common, but his interior room was not taken. Nothing was taken from there. Like I mentioned before, pharaohs that followed him, or that, that followed, chose to ignore him and erase his history because of his link to his father. This could be why that interior room was not touched at all, and that's why we have so many artifacts of King Tut. Now, we've gone over a ton of information on King Tut, but there's still so much more out there. This is over 3,000 years ago, and this there's new information that's coming out all the time. But we're going to move past King Tut, and we're going to talk about the next pharaoh. This next pharaoh we're going to be talking about, I, I have mentioned him in a past episode. I also mentioned a place called Abu Simbel. Uh, this place had the four statues that were all the same person in the 1960s. They had to raise them up so that they could make sure that, that the statues and the temples were not engulfed by this reservoir. Now, this person was Ramses II, or Pharaoh Ramses, who we're going to be talking about now. Now, we, we've been skipping a f quite a few pharaohs here and there, just because I want us to focus on some specific ones. If we were to go over every single pharaoh throughout all of ancient Egypt, that would take hours upon hours just to go through even half of the dynasties. There's so much information about all these pharaohs and so many different pharaohs that it's it's too much to handle. Now, we can uh, do a podcast later on where we talk about each one of these pharaohs, but for now, we're just going to be skipping through a few of these. Um, this is in order for us to make some progressions so that we can um, progress on to the next subject, which I want to talk about. Um, but, like I said, we're going to start talking about Ramses II now. Uh, Ramses II is known for not only his wars with the Hittites and also Libyans, but he had an extensive building program that he had them make these colossal statues of himself throughout Egypt. This is why we're going to be talking about him. He was... Not only a great warrior, but he also had a lot of buildings that were made, a lot of statues. We see some of these statues even now, which is really incredible. Now, some background on Ramses real quick. His family was of non-royal origin. They were not royalty. They only became of power decades after Akhenaten, who we had, we had already talked about, the religious culture, uh, cultist pharaoh. Um, and the Ramses family, family wanted to restore Egypt's power in Asia. See, during the time of Akhenaten, when he was trying to focus all of their attention on this one religion, it, it caused their outer breaches to not be as focused, and they lost power in these areas. So in Asia, their power had decreased. Um, Egypt had power throughout many different places, and during Akhenaten's time and during King Tut's time, the, the, the power just kind of declined. It weakened. Now, before Ramses ruled, his father, who was Seti I, had, and I quote, subdued a number of rebellious princes in Palestine and southern Syria, end quote. 
This caused wars with the Hittites and uh, of Anatolia. This is all done so that Egypt could recover its power in these northern areas. They're trying to regain the, the land that Egypt had lost during Akhenaten's time. These wars that Seti I had, had won wouldn't last long, though. They actually would crumble his, his areas that he tried to defeat. At the end of his reign, the enemy had created a fortress to defend um, Oranto's river, which is in Kadesh. This was the southern part of that northern area. That's where it uh, borders at. During Seti's reign, Seti gave his son, Ramses, who would later become Ramses II, a special assignment, a special status as a regent, promoted him up higher and higher and higher. Ramses was allowed to accompany his father on his campaigns and a kingly household with Harem. If you never heard of Harem, it's basically concubine, concubines. He was given these people to escort him. Uh, this gave Ramses the chance to understand war and, and kingship and experience so that he would be able to rule someday because everybody knew that he would be the next one to rule because that's kind of how the lineage went. Um, and it was because of Seti I's ability to take back the Asia areas that they said, okay, well, this family should be royalty and therefore they will be the next rulers. Now, this was not typical for young a young princess to be a part of these things. Usually the young princes and princesses would be in their palaces and they wouldn't be going to war with their fathers like what's happening with Ramsey. So it's a pretty unique thing that's happening. And this is even though someday he would be a pharaoh uh, and everybody knew it, it, it was it was kind of interesting. It was a different take on the whole royal family. Now at the age of 10, he was made captain of an army. Can you imagine that? 10 years old being a captain of the army. He had to, to been trained or received military training way before this to become a captain. So he has all his military, military experience even before he became pharaoh. Later in life, Ramses built a full-scale resident city that, that was called Paramsesu, which is House of Ramses, which is right on the Nile River Delta. Now this made it easy for them to campaign into Asia so they could actually control that a little bit better. This place was known for uh, its beautiful layout. There's some drawings you can see online of this place, but there was gardens, there's orchards, there's waters. It was just a magnificent place in this deserty area. Um, and also in this in this little, or this big city, there were four quarters that were assigned uh, to a deity, and um, these deities were supposed to be uh, representative in these areas. There was Emon, which is in the west. There was Seth in the south, who was actually the, the royal cobra goddess, or she was the royal cobra goddess. Um, Wajet is in the north, and then the Syrian goddess Astarte in the east, this being closer to Syria. And that's kind of how they made this whole city kind of uh, contained and help people understand what they were supposed to be worshiping instead of, you know, resulting back in the old times of Akhenaten where he decided one god only. Now, besides many of the statues that he had required and the buildings that he constructed, Ramses was considered a great king in the eyes of his subjects. In everybody's eyes, or everybody thought that he was a great king. This is mainly because of his fame as a soldier. Because at age 10, like I was saying, he became a captain of an army. And throughout his whole entire life, he was a soldier. And this made him really famous among the people. He had led an army in the fourth year of his, uh, of his reign in the north to try and regain the land of his father, or land that his father had lost. 
and it took more than one expedition though so it was quite a, a battle to try and get this land back in the first ep- expedition um it was to subdue the rebellious local dynasts that were in the southern area of syria so that he could theoretically springboard further north so he could try to continue punching forward with this help he stopped near beirut which there's some some information on beirut uh, recently there was an explosion that happened that's besides the point that's just where we know beirut is and he had a scribe record the events of the campaign but today this inscription that the scribe had did only shows ramsey's name and the date the other parts have worn away because of, of the weather and because of everything and this is thousands of years ago so of course you know it's gonna wear away Later on, he set out his armies to attack the stronghold that the Hittites had built up in Kadesh. He had his troops follow the coastal road to the Palestine and Lebanon area where they they were halted south of the land of Amor, which could have been in the area of Tripolis at this time, uh, of, of today's time. Uh, Ramses set out a special, special forces group to take the seaport of Samara and to later on rejoined the main army in Kadesh. As they, the special forces went out, they were able to take uh, some seaports that were important for winning the battle. His army had four di- divisions of char- uh, chariotry and infantry, each consisting of around 5,000 men. So it's a pretty large army that Ramses is trying to set up so he can take back the land that his father had lost. Early in, er, earlier in these ex- expeditions though, they were able to catch two Hittite spies who gave Ramses incorrect information. Uh, they had told him that the main troops of Hittites were at a place called Aleppo, which is farther north. And so when Ramses' first first part of his army came to the front of the city of Kadesh, he thought that they would only need to deal with the guards and the route front, they would be able to easily uh, take over the city. But as the troops camped, because that's what normally would happen, they would camp before going to war, Ramses learned that the main Hittite army was actually behind the walls, and he sent messengers to tell the other troops that they need to move quick, they need to get to them as fast as they can. But before any action was taken to speed up the other troops, the Hittites attacked with 2,500 chariots, with three men to a chariot. This is against the Egyptians, who only had two men per chariot. Ramses' front men, the ones that were uh, the first ones to fight, uh, they were caught completely off guard. So they surprised them and they fled away because they didn't want to die from the Hittites. And that left Ramses with a very small corpse of household chariotry and, and they were completely surrounded. But Ramses got lucky. That special task force that he sent out earlier to take back those seaports they finally met back up with Ramses' troops and they were able to fight off the Hittites' army. This ended the first day of the battle, with the Egyptian army being victorious in the field, but they weren't actually able to take the Kadesh uh, city back. On the second day, each side was not fit enough to continue fighting, so the Egyptians returned home. This battle of Kadesh is one of the very few battles that we actually have details about what happened in ancient Egypt time. The reason why we have so much of information, why it was so detailed is because Ramses was very proud to not completely lose to a great army like that. There were poems written about this, there was carvings made, there was paintings made. Even though this battle wasn't very victorious, it was something that want, that Ramses wanted people to remember. 
Later in Ramsey's reign, he did take a number of towns, and one that I'd like to point out is in a battle at Katna and Tunith. He was caught off guard again, and he was attacked by the Hittites. And when he went into battle, he had zero armor, and he just started badly. He was able to get his troops together and defeat the enemies, and held this area long enough for a statue of himself as the overlord be erected in Tunith itself. Now, even though he had taken many areas, he learned that it was not possible for him to hold these areas permanently because of the constant Hittite pressure. It was always they were always trying to fight back. And so, after about 16 years of intermittent train of this these hostilities that continued on and off and on and off, he finally decided that there needs to be a treaty to be made. And so, he created a treaty of peace that was made in 1258 BC. And this was to help stop the wars and basically create a peace right now with no more wars and somewhat peaceful times happening the two nations had made some friendly ties britannica.com says letters on diplomatic matters were regularly exchanged in 1245 Ramses contracted a marriage with the eldest daughter of the Hittite king and it is possible that at a later date he married a second Hittite princess so you can see Ramses is trying to combine the nations without having to do wars the, at the beginning of his career, Ramses was all about fighting. He knew all about the military. That's what his main goal was, to continue fighting and try and beat people. Later on, there was actual peace in his life, and he was wanting to create this environment that people could feel at ease with, and there could be good trade routes with. At this time, Ramses was able to increase Egypt's prosperity and build many temples and statues and create these great historical records that we have of him and his time today. This led Egyptologists of the 19th century to dub him the Great, and the people at his time thought he was really great as well. There were nine additional kings of the 20th dynasty, this is between 1190 to 1077 BC, that called themselves Ramses as well. Now, that's because they liked him so much, they liked what he did, they wanted to duplicate what he was doing. And even later in time, when Egypt's power began to fall, it was actually an honor to be able to claim a, as a descendant from him. If you remember back when we were talking about Akhenaten and King Tut, they didn't like what happened, so they tried to erase him from history. So you don't hear another Akhenaten king, or you don't hear about another King Tut, but there were multiple King Ramses. He had completed many temples and buildings throughout Egypt, a great hall in Karnak, a temple of, uh, in Luxor for his father and one for himself, um, a, a temple in Abydos and then in, in Nubia he had constructed more than six temples and commissioned Abu Simbel which we talked about before on a side note uh, the larger of the two s- statues that were um, in Abu Simbel that we were talking about earlier they were you know all of them had the face of King Ramses but the larger of the two had started under Seti's time the, the for his his father's time but they were finished under Ramses time and so that's why they were made to look like Ramses more many of the statues that we see today were under Ramses II they were able to last so long because he was able to create this piece the funny part is that there's not much detail about his personal life though he did dedicate a smaller temple in Ambu Simbel to his favorite queen Nefertari she must have died earlier on in in his reign as pharaoh and her tomb was in the Valley of Queens his other queens are not much talked about. 
but he did have a large harem, a large group of, of women, which is normal for a pharaoh to do. This is a fun fact, though. He did take pride of his family of over 100 children, so he had a lot of children following after him. The best portrait of Ramses is in the Egyptian Museum of Turin, which shows him as a young man. Um, and his mummy, when he was created mummified and everything like that, that's actually in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo at this moment. Ramses II reign marks the, the last peak of Egypt's imperial power. He was the last one to set up this this entire system to be really well and it was it was the last peak. After he had passed, Egypt was forced on the defensive, was able to remain in power over Palestine and the adjacent areas until around later in the 20th century. This is when a huge migration of militant sea peoples came to Levant and and this ended Egypt's power beyond its borders, so they're starting to lose ground. Ramses was a good good soldier despite other battles against Kadesh, which which we already talked about. And he had a, a competent administrator since the country was so prosperous. So we kind of think that's why they were able to, to work to, to get this great power in Egypt. Um, he was for sure a very popular king back then and even now. So we're going to end the podcast right here. Um, we'll, next week we'll talk more about some other Egypt's things. We'll talk about Hebrews. We're actually going to move on to the Hebrews and Israel and what's going on over there. Um, I hope you like this episode. I know we covered a lot of stuff about Egypt, but there's even more that we can cover, which is too much to go over in just one episode. So I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, everyone.